0: scripture for us this morning. And I've chosen a passage of scripture in Ephesians that I think will encompass what we're trying to accomplish today. So if you'd stand please, we're going to read Ephesians chapter 3, Ephesians chapter 3 and verses 7 through 12. Okay.
1: Okay. <coughs> oh, sorry. Of this gospel, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given me by the working of his that he has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him.
0: Lord, help us today as we begin our time in this incredible book. Um, Lord, as we allow the book of Ephesians to be um, strength and nourishment and um, satisfaction for our lives, Lord, allow us to be humble, allow us to be teachable, allow our time this morning to um, set the stage for how you're going to continue to strengthen us and build us over the weeks to come. Lord, thank you for your church. Thank you for Gateway. Thank you for my brothers and sisters that are here and their desire to grow in you and their desire to learn from you. And I ask, Lord, that you would um, make yourself known during our time uh, in Ephesians. Lord, may, may we see the, the beauty of who you are and, Lord, may we see that what you call us to flows out of the fact that we are in you. And uh, Lord, we just, we just ask now for direction and wisdom, and I ask, Lord, that uh, you would just use me this morning to, to, to lay out this, this book in such a way that we would be eager and hungry to learn from it, we ask in your precious name. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. Um, how many people like to go on vacation? Um, the problem is that oftentimes in a, in a marriage... Um, or even in a family, people have different views of what vacation actually looks like. Right? There are some people who just want to go and kind of veg around the pool. Any any pool veggers here? You can you can raise your hand. It's okay. It's not all right. Just relaxing, kind of doing nothing. Then there are some people that just want to plan every day and literally have a a schedule at 10 o'clock on this day, and I mean just all throughout the time. Right? It's just laid out exactly and. There's some benefit to that, too, um, but, you know, it's kind of weird when, you know, at 10 o'clock, time to lay by the pool. I mean, those two things don't necessarily go together. Now, when it comes to vacations, um, I like to have an overarching plan that has some specific activities laid out, but that is flexible enough to change if um, the need uh, arises or some kind of a problem is facing us. And so I've, I've noticed through the years, that it's always good to have this big picture plan uh, of what you're doing on vacation. So you kind of, you know, lay out, hey, this, you know, we're going for two weeks, and, you know, these are the things we want to accomplish, and we're hoping to do it maybe on these days. So there there is kind of a big plan, and and it's good when you're taking people with you on vacation to communicate that plan and have them see what that looks like, um, and to kind of be on the same page. Um, It would be unwise and unhelpful to have a Let's just see approach to vacation. Um, That's what you might call a jungle book approach to vacation, where everyone looks at each other and says, oh, what do you want to do? And they all kind of raise their shoulders and say, I don't know, what do you want to do? And if you've seen the jungle book, you know what I'm talking about, right? It's that kind of a thing, and everyone's just like, I don't know. Well, um, I remember on some mission trips that I've been on, I found it really, really important to make sure, because I was leading it, here's what the plan is. Now, it's better to have a plan and scrap it than to not have a plan, right? Here's what we're hoping to do. And in fact, when we went to Bolivia, we had a plan. And we actually pretty well stuck to the plan of this is what we're doing on these particular days. And yet, the specifics of what was going on during those days wasn't necessarily laid out. But people, you know, typically in the context of a mission trip want to know, you know, when are we actually going to go to the airport? Um... When are we going to travel in the context of Bolivia? When are we going to travel from Santa Cruz to the mountain of Sama, uh, mountains of Sana, Samaipata and that village up there? When, when will people be teaching and, and sharing their testimonies? And uh, when will we be able to um, just kind of do a, a wash of our clothes or take a shower or have some time to rest? Or, you know, when are we going to go to the market? These are all questions that people are wondering, and you, you don't want people to be frustrated. So you want to have some kind of a plan, some kind of a picture. And I share all that to say this. There may be an eagerness sometimes when you start the study of a book just to want to jump in and say, all right, let's go, boom, 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 boom. But it's really important. I think it's really helpful to take at least one Sunday to kind of do this big picture, fly over, looking at the, 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 the overarching flow of what's going on in that book uh, to map out the various paths or themes that are in that book So that you can see the significant monuments and the significant places and and see it tied together. Now quite frankly, Ephesians is not an easy book when it comes to that. There are some things that are pretty easy. Ephesians is not one of those books, like John or Jude, where there is a couple of verses of Scripture that specifically say, you know, this was written for this purpose. You're not going to find that in the book of Ephesians. So it's really helpful for us then to kind of do our homework and start digging around and and thinking through what might be there that we could kind of see it all working together. And so this morning, my goal is not to be heavy on application, although there will be application that teases out of what we're talking about here. My goal is to lay this kind of big picture out so that we we'll have a hunger and a little better perspective when we go to read Ephesians for ourselves and then when we come back and we continue our study together. I want the, the smell of the aroma of the book of Ephesians to be settling in our, in our nostrils and it be a sweet aroma. I want us to grasp the tone and the importance of this letter. And I want to, to finish up ultimately by focusing on the first two verses of this letter, which I think are Absolutely incredible and lay out a lot of uh, direction for what Paul is trying to do in this little letter. By the way, when Paul wrote Ephesians, he also wrote the book of Colossians, and he wrote the book of Philemon, and he sent it by the hand. If you go to chapter 6, you'll notice um, in verse um, 21, it says, So that you also may know how I am and what I am doing, Tychicus the beloved brother and faithful minister in the Lord will tell you everything. Well, Tychicus was the one that took the letter then to Ephesus as well as to Colossae and Philemon. He went there. Now, the book of Colossians is written for a specific purpose, to counteract Gnostic ideas that were creeping up in the church. All right, the little letter to Philemon was all about forgiveness. All right? and so he's writing these books, but he's also writing This this letter to the Ephesian church or the Ephesian um, Christians. Now, let's think a little bit about context, a little bit about context. Let's talk about just Ephesus as a city. Um, Ephesus was a very important city located in the Roman province of what was then called Asia. We call it now Asia Minor. It's actually in the region of Turkey today. Um, it was heavily populated, about 300,000 um, lived in that city, in, in that particular region. It's known for its massive theater, uh, the size of a football stadium. They probably could have had the Super Bowl back then there, seated about 50,000 people. Um, it, was, um, it was where the cult uh, worship of the emperor took place, but it was eclipsed by another religious system that was the cult of Diana. Um, and you may also know uh, that Diana is also known as Artemis. So you have this this worship of Diana and this temple of Diana, which was considered to be one of the seven wonders of the world. So this was a significant place that had a lot of, uh, I might want to say religious, pagan religious activity that was taking place. Um, And of course, uh, in the middle of this temple, there was this, statue of Diana, and they believed that this statue had fallen from the sky. Turn your Bibles to Acts chapter 19, and by the way, Acts chapter 19 is a, a, a you know, heavy account of activities, Paul's activities, when he finally gets to Ephesus and some of the things that took place there, and we'll walk through that in just a minute, but I at least want you to know in Acts 19 verse 35 what we're told there. And when the town clerk had quieted the crowd, he said, Men of Ephesus, who is there who does not know that the city of of the Ephesians is temple keeper of the great Artemis, which is Diana, and of the sacred stone that fell from the sky? Who doesn't know that? I mean, who doesn't know that this, this statue in the middle of this temple came from the heavens? All right? Which is actually a pretty significant thought when we'll we'll finally get there as we read um, and study the book of Ephesians together. Now, let's think of of things in terms of um, Paul's missionary journey then, recorded for us in Acts 19. Um, It was his second missionary journey, and when he arrived in Ephesus, he found disciples, and then he went to the synagogue to preach, and he preached there for three months, until those who were in leadership were stubborn, did not like what he was saying, and he ended up moving out and going to a place, we're told there in Acts 19, the Hall of uh, Tyrannus. And that's where he taught for two years. So for two years, Paul preached and taught the wonderful, beautiful gospel of Jesus Christ to the people that were in that place. Now, one of, the, one of the, the, the struggles with the book of Ephesians, if you look at, again, Ephesians chapter 1 and verses 1 and 2, it says, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from God our Father and Lord Jesus Christ. Some of the more um, reliable manuscripts do not have the word um, to or in Ephesus. Now, that doesn't mean that it wasn't written to Ephesus, it just... There is some question about that, but certainly it was written to the believers in that region. Can you imagine Paul teaching for two years, and as we we think through um, Acts 19, what happens is that people were getting converted, lives were being changed, so much so that those who were practicing magic and those who were following the worship of Diana are now being converted away from that, there is actually a book burning that took place. They brought all their books out and threw them into a pile and burned them because they were books that were pagan books. And then a little later in chapter 19 of Acts, we find out that the craftsmen that were building the, or creating the idols for the worship of Diana were getting upset because if people are getting converted and they're no longer worshiping Diana, what happens? They're no longer buying their product. And how are we going to survive? And they're looking at it from, you know, Economic perspectives, and they ended up causing a riot. Okay. So, I mean, there's a lot of actually things that are going on that are actually pretty consistent with what could happen here in the United States. People don't like the gospel. Why? One of the reasons might be economics. Okay? So this is the context that we find Paul's initial interaction with the Ephesian church, a two year two-year, three-month stint where he's ministering the gospel. And so it's not just a church in Ephesus, you know, a little church in a house group somewhere. We're talking about people who have been for for two-plus years have been fed and taught the word of God, and the church in that region had spread out. So there is a sense in which the, the, the book of Ephesians is a circular letter for that region, written and directed to Ephesus as a city, but also for the people that are in that city. So just be, be mindful of that kind of thing. Now, it's also, it's also worth noting that later, Ephesus would be the, um, the place where Timothy was sent by Paul to pastor. And he would be that, I want to say, regional pastor for that area. And then, of course, Revelation chapter 2, verse 4, describes Ephesus as the church that has lost its first love. Okay. So there's a lot that we have in God's word about Ephesus. You'd even say that First and Second Timothy would also be fodder for our understanding of what was going on in Ephesus um, and the kind of struggles that were there. All right So there's this kind of general background that 's helpful for us to know, and I 've just scratched the surface, but hopefully it's a help to you to understand the importance of this city. Secondly, I want us to look at the general structure of what's going on here. Now structure' important. Structure helps us understand why things are where they are, and and, and what is it actually saying. When, when we go to Bolivia, honestly, the hardest thing that we have, we have found out in working with the national pastors is that they have a hard time with structure. They're quick to interpret, but they're, they're slow to actually see what is there. And that is true, I think, of a lot of people. They, just, they read a, a, a book like this just kind of as, as a letter, and they don't think about is there, is there form? Is there a process of thinking? Is there some kind of argument going on that's, that we need to kind of pay attention to? And, and, and Paul has this typical habit in his letters of, of having kind of doctrine first and then application second. And that is exactly what happens in this book. We call this the importance of understanding the grammar of the gospel and the grammar of Paul's letter. Gospel grammar, let me explain what we're talking about. In chapter 1 through 3 of Ephesus, we have doctrine. Now, that's a very, very broad word to use, but basically there's teaching about truth uh, going on, all right? And we call that indicative. These are indicatives, these are just truths. Then we have in chapter 4 through 6, broadly speaking, application, and the application now are imperatives. Imperatives are like commands. So let's just think about what, what is an indicative. Indicatives are truths about God, us, and his glorious gospel. They're the doctrines that God wants us to grasp. They're teaching, uh, teachings about his character, about his attributes, about his purposes. They're teachings about the gospel, uh, who Christ is and what he has done. They're teachings about God's people, our condition our hope, our reconciliation, our standing, and so on. They're just, this is true about you. This is true about God. That's what indicatives are. Now, imperatives um, flow out of the indicatives. Imperatives are the commands given to us by God. And the way things flow out is that what we have in chapter 4 through chapter 6 are commands that are rooted in chapters 1 through 3. So the commands that God gives us are rooted in teaching, are rooted in these doctrinal truths. So to put it another way, Paul lays the foundation of solid doctrine so that we can have a basis and context for our careful and obedient application. Now, hear this, friends. If we don't have a grasp of solid doctrine, we will wobble in our application. If we don't have a solid grasp on doctrine, we will wobble in our application. So many times I've seen this. I've seen this in the context of churches where people say, oh, we want to study Ephesians, all right? Well, yeah, let's jump to chapter 4 because the first part is is just doctrine. We want to get to the good, meaty application stuff. And you end up coming to conclusions about the application that is so off-base because you haven't taken the time to understand the doctrine that is foundational for understanding why that application is even there. Now, what are some topics that Ephesians brings out? It talks about marriage, role of husband, role of wife. It talks about parents. It talks about children and their relationship to parents. It talks about slaves and their relationship to masters and masters' relationship to slaves. So let's just take marriage, for example. If you want to go to the book of Ephesians and study marriage, you're not going to understand the marriage passages unless you understand what God has already said in chapters 1 through 3 about your relationship with Him. Okay? So so doctrine should always precede application. Without solid doctrine, you will have a faulty application. And that's why we have in chapter 4 and verse 1 the word, therefore. It's a hinge word, and it's referring back to everything that's been said in chapters 1 through 3. Now, I'm trying to lay out the thinking of Paul here. Paul's saying, you know, he's not thinking three chapters. He's just thinking, I'm laying down doctrinal truths. Truth, 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 truth. This is what happened. This is who you are. This is how it happened. This is your standing now, based on that, here's how I want you to live. And if we bypass chapters 1 through 3, our perspective of chapters 4 through 6 are going to be distorted. Now, um, let's think now about the outline. and Some of this will, will flesh out a little, a little clearer as we, as we think about an outline. I've given you, in your handout there, kind of a, a very, very basic structure outline. We have the introduction, um, or the greeting there, verses 1 and 2, which we'll look at a little later. But then we have, I've I've created three divisions. Basically, verses chapters 1 through 3 would be where you're seated, because the whole point there is about your position in Christ. And if you want to look specifically, um, look at chapter 2, um, actually look at chapter 1, Uh, and verse 20, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand where? In the heavenly places. Then look at chapter 2 and verse 5. Even when we were dead in trespasses and sins or trespasses, made us alive with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him. With him. Oh, it goes back to verse 20. And seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. We're seated with Christ, in Christ, in the heavenly places. That's kind of a summary of chapter one through three. It's our actual position in Christ. Then you notice in chapter four, in verse one, I therefore, a prisoner of the Lord, urge you to what? Walk in a manner worthy of our calling. Go down to chapter. For verse 17, now this I say and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do. Chapter 5, verse 2, and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us. Verse 8, at that time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. Chapter uh, 5, verse 15, look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but wise. Okay, and then... We have verse 22 and 25 and and, and chapter 6, verse 1, where we see wives and husbands and children and fathers and slaves and masters. These are all expressions of our walk. So we're we're, we're seated, chapters 1 through 3. Chapters 4 through chapter 6, verse 9, we're walking. (laughs) This is our walk. Now, look at chapter 6. Look at chapter 6. Verse 10, finally, be strong in the Lord and the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to what? Stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day. And having done all, stand firm. Stand therefore, okay? So the emphasis is on standing. So you have this, where you're seated is going to be perspective, it's going to be fuel, it's going to be um, resource so that you can walk in a way that glorifies God and so that you can stand in a way that also glorifies God and defeats the schemes of the devil who's trying to undermine your walk. Okay? And then, of course, there's the conclusion. So I see this sitting, walking, standing as kind of a a structural outflow that's just just kind of laid out there for us. So a little bit there about the general structure. Getting a little better glimpse now of Ephesians? Now, when you read it yourself and you start underlining and you start connecting, it's going to be helpful. Now, let's think about the general themes. And I want to focus on three general themes this morning for time's sake, but I think will be helpful for us. And so we're going to be moving all the way through the book here. And, um, you know, these themes are weaving all the way through the different chapters, and there's purposes there that God wants us to see, and there, there are subject matters that will help us comprehend specifically how God wants to approach our study of this book. So let's begin with the first theme that I'm calling, in the heavenly places, in the heavenly places. And you have there all the passages that, uh, that where this, this expression is used. Chapter 1, verse 3 tells us that God has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing, where? In the heavenly places. Chapter 1, verse 20, God raised Christ from the dead and seated him at his right hand, where? In the heavenly places. Chapter 2, verse 6, God made us alive with Christ and raised us up with him and seated us with him. Where? In the heavenly places. Chapter 3, verse 10, the manifold wisdom of God will be made known through the church to rulers and authorities. Where? In the heavenly places. Now you're starting to ask yourself, oh, wait a second. What's going on here? The church is making known... The the wisdom of God in the heavenly places? And to make it even harder to comprehend, look at chapter 6 and verse 12. We wrestle against rulers, authorities, cosmic powers, and spiritual forces of evil. Where? In the heavenly places. Does that mean when I get to heaven that Satan's going to be there? No. It means we have to have a good understanding of what the heavenly places are. Okay? So there's a realm... Called the heavenly places where Christ is seated, where we are seated, where we are given all these uh, spiritual blessings, where the church is called to make known uh, the, 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 the gospel to the rulers and authorities around them. And it is the arena in which we wrestle against spiritual forces. So what are the heavenly places? And let me tell you, the heavenly places describe the spiritual realm where Christ reigns sovereign and supreme let me ask you a question does god reign in heaven answer does god reign on earth does god reign in hell i sure hope so <laughs> he does okay He is sovereign. He reigns. He reigns supremely. And that's why it's important to recognize that where God is seated, He is seated over His realm that is called the heavenly places. And that realm includes heaven. That realm includes the earth. That realm includes the activity of Satan and his minions to accomplish what Satan wants, but God sits in authority over all that. And he's called us, with our spiritual blessings, to be the church, to make known the wisdom of God to rulers and authorities. In this realm. Now friends, that's a really important concept for us to understand. Because God has called you to something, and he's called us as a church to something. He has placed us here to accomplish what chapter 3 in particular is telling us to do and to be. So as we think about who we are in Christ, we're to remember that we have both a position on earth as well as a position in heaven. For the Ephesians, God had called them to Ephesus or the surrounding regions, But although they had one foot in the physical world of Ephesus, they can take comfort in the fact that they are presently seated with Christ in the heavenly places. This is not a future reality. This is a present certainty. While the Ephesians, living in the region of Ephesus, are in this realm, battling the forces of evil, being the church, representing the gospel to the world around them, they also have the confidence that they are seated in the heavenly places in Christ. Now, friends, we may live in Castro Valley or Hayward or Fremont or San Leandro or Oakland, and I've missed you, I'm sorry, but I'm including you too. That is our physical seat, that is our physical position. But all of us, if we are God's children, we are in Christ and we're seated in Christ in the heavenly places. That is our spiritual position. That is not something that is future. That is a reality now. And Just pause and think about that. You, if you're a child of God, are seated with Him in Christ in the heavenly places. You are not alone. And you have almost... Fully arrived. (laughs) But he has some work yet for you to do. And he is calling you to be something, he's calling you to do something. Now just think about this. How does that change a little bit our perspective of our understanding about marriage? Why would God um, why would God call us to think about our marriages? Because in our marriages, what are we supposed to be doing? We're supposed to be making known the wisdom of God to rulers and authorities. In our parenting, what are we supposed to be doing? Making known the wisdom of God to rulers and And authorities. Apply all these practical things that people want to run after, disjointed from the doctrine that is being revealed here. It's just practical stuff without God's fuel and power. There's a reason why he calls us to work on our marriages it's not just so that we can be reconciled to our spouses there's there's something far more important than that going on there's something far more beautiful and amazing going on we get to make known the wisdom of god through these relationships to those who are around us now friends that's a completely different perspective So sitting with Christ is a present reality. And this is fleshed out a little bit more in chapter 1, verses 3 through 10. Let's just just walk our way a little bit through chapter 1. Um, And I want you to to note that in chapter 1, verses 3 through 10, we find the expression, in him and in Christ, repeated like eight times. Listen to the language Paul uses uh, to describe the spiritual blessings. We'll begin at, at chapter 1, verse 7. whether in heaven or on earth, to him. So notice the expression, all things. And then, as we continue reading, I want you to ask yourself the question, who are the we and who are the you? Who are the we in verse 11 who are the the you in verse 13? And again, you you begin to, to comprehend the rationale of what Paul is saying here. In him, we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who As, as as we look there, just recognize that the we is a reference to the Jews. Paul's referring to those who are the Jews. They're the we. They are the ones who first were the first to hope in Christ. Where is Ephesus? It's not in Israel. All right? It's in Asia or in Turkey. It's a completely different place. It is a Gentile community. Certainly there were Jews there. But it was a Gentile community. And so the we must be the Jews who have believed in Jesus. The you must be the Gentiles who have also believed in Jesus. In him, you also, he says. And notice in chapter 2, verses 11 and following. Therefore, remember that at one time, you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision. And it goes through verse 13. Again, you Gentiles. And then as you read on, look at verse, uh, verse 14 of chapter 2. For he himself is our peace, who, made, who has made us both one, and has broken down the, in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility between Jew and Gentile by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both. To God. All right, so the both, the us, the together is the Jew and the Gentile, all being united together in Christ. Now, there may be someone here who is a Jewish descendant, but probably most of us here would be Gentiles. This is about us. This is about how God reached down and has lavished his love on us. And brought us into the covenant family of, of the church, so to speak, of Israel, joining us together as one man, not two separate, but one man. Okay? He did all that to the praise of his glory. So let me just summarize what we've just looked at. It is through the grace of Christ's work on the cross that we can see that everything is moving toward Jesus enthroned over everything forever to unite all things in him, things in heaven, and things on earth. And so, yes, we are blessed with spiritual blessings, but we're not blessed with spiritual blessings so that we can play with our spiritual blessings. We're blessed with spiritual blessings because we are called to a greater and more wonderful role of making known the wisdom of God to the world around us. We're God's saints on the earth, blessed with spiritual blessings. But we're also God's saints seated with him. And so, friends, there is a sense in which the church is a prototype of what is yet to come in the future. The goal, even in our imperfection, is to be a picture of what ultimate unity will be when we're all together with Christ in heaven. That's quite the task, isn't it? <laughs> but that's what he's calling us to. All right? So, in the heavenly places. The next word, the next name is the word mystery. Mystery. Now, we find this word mystery in three places in the book of Ephesians. We find it at the beginning, chapter 1 and verse 9, where it's introduced, the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ. Then we find that at the end of the book, chapter 6, verse 19, where Paul is asking for prayer to boldly proclaim the mystery of the gospel. And then we have a fuller discussion of it in chapter 3, verses 1 through 8 or 9, somewhere in there. So we have to ask ourselves the question, what is this word mystery? Let me give you the typical definition of, of mystery. The word mystery talks about a secret that was previously hidden, but has now been made known. So, not everything about the gospel had been revealed, had been articulated, but now this mystery has been made known. So, we go to chapter 3 and verse 1. Paul says, For this reason I, Paul, a prisoner of, the, of Christ Jesus on behalf of you Gentiles, assuming that you heard of the stewardship of god's grace that was given to me for you how the mystery was made known to me by revelation as i have written briefly when you read this you can perceive my insight into the mystery of christ which was not made known to the sons of men in their generations as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and the prophets by the spirit and there's a There's a progressive, I want to say revelation, that we have in the Word of God. Let me try and explain it this way. Um, Is the Gospel in the Gospels? Answer? Is the Gospel in the Old Testament? Yes. But the Gospel is more fully articulated in the Epistles. The Epistles explain what was revealed in the Old Testament. Ah, we say we look back in the Old Testament and say, aha, now I have a better understanding of what that is all about. Because why? Paul is writing about it. Peter's writing about it. They're explaining it. And so that's what Paul is talking about here. This is, this, there's something that's been hidden that now is being made known. Now the question is, what specifically is this mystery? Verse 6. This mystery is that the Gentiles are what? fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise of Christ Jesus through the gospel. So this wonderful reality, this mystery, this truth that the gospel was not just for the Jews, the gospel was for everyone, is this wonderful truth that is being proclaimed, this mystery that is being Um, So this mystery is that we, Jews and Gentiles, are united together in Christ through the gospel. Verse 7, Of this gospel I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given me by the working of his power. To me, though I am very least of the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ, and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things, so that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in heavenly places. You see the the importance of the church in Paul's words here. The church now has this mystery, has this wisdom of God, has the ability to make known these realities to the rulers and authorities around them, which means the world around them. This mystery is, is there to be made known. So, so let's put it this way: God is bringing the Jews and Gentiles together in Christ through the gospel, so that the church, um, so that the church, um, can can make known the wisdom of God um, to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. So, what this means is this: the church is a foreshadowing, like I just mentioned earlier, of. The ultimate reign of Christ over everything for eternity. And the rulers and authorities are watching the church. God has chosen the frail, sinful church to be the agent to make known the wisdom of God to the world. So just let me ask you this when when the world around us looks at the church, (laughs) what do they see? Do they see the wisdom of God on display? Are they hearing the the manifold wisdom, the, 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 the wonderful gospel proclaimed? Are they seeing lives that reflect the glory of God and reflect the fact that they are seated with Christ in the heavenly places? Are they seeing families that care about those things? And more often than not, I would say, no, they're not. And so the the application to us as a church is to say, God, we want to be this church. We want to take this responsibility seriously. And that's a corporate reality, but it's also a personal reality because people see the church through individuals. I don't see a bunch of people that are you know, unbelievers outside our doors looking in, trying to figure out what's going on here. Where they understand the church is through what you say and what you do and how you behave and how you interact with them. God has given us this great privilege of making known the gospel. So when we're told to submit to God and to one another in our marriages we're making known the wisdom of God. When we're told to submit to God and to our parents as children, we're making known the mystery of the gospel. When we're, we're told to submit to God and to um, our parents, we're making known the, the wisdom of God. We're coming face to face with the cross. When we're, when we're, when we're seeking to submit to God and to our masters as slaves or as, uh, to our bosses as employees, we are putting the gospel on display when we are willing to submit to God and, as, uh, and, and slaves as masters. In other words, even the, the boss now submits to those that are employees, has an attitude of, of, of mutual submission, of appreciation. We then, if that's us, we are putting God's will on display for others to see. This, this submission that we find in chapter 5, look at, if you would please, chapter 5, we kind of lays the foundation for what I'm talking about here. Um, verse 21, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. There is this mutual submission. You see, wives are to submit, husbands are to love their, their wives, but the, the, the husband also, in a sense, submits to the wife, recognizes her role, recognizes her function. Children, obey your parents. Then it says in verse 4, fathers, do not provoke your children. There's this mutual responsibility to honor God and to reflect the gospel in those relationships. And then slaves in verse 5 and masters in verse 9, we're all given that responsibility. When we do that, the world around us is able to see the wisdom of God on display. Now, the reality is we're imperfect at that, right? But what is God calling us to? To work at honoring God in that. So what was once hidden, we have the great privilege to make known to the world as a foreshadowing of of the future when all things will be put under his feet. So that's the second theme. We're just kind of touching it, but let's look at the third theme. We'll kind of quickly highlight this. When it's rulers and authorities, we brought it up, and some of this is going to cover some of the similar territory, but it's important for us to recognize this. That there is, this, there is this dynamic of rulers and authorities. And it's, it's throughout the whole book of Ephesians, beginning in chapter 1. And go to chapter 1, where Paul is asking for prayer for the Ephesian believers, based on the fact that God raised Christ from the dead and seated him at, this, at, at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion. There it is. And above every name that is, uh, is named, not only in, the age, uh, in this age, but also in the age to come. So here's this, these rulers and authorities and powers and dominions that, that Jesus is raised above. We begin to get this perspective. But they're there. Then we go to chapter, um, chapter 1 and verse 22. These, these rulers and authorities and powers and dominions are all encompassed under the all things. And he put all things under his feet. What are the all things? Those rulers and authorities and powers and dominions. Chapter 2, verse 2 we're given a glimpse into who Satan actually is. He is the prince of the power of the air, he is the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. Let me ask you the question though Is Satan running around independent of God? What's the answer? Absolutely not. Don't ever get this idea that Satan and God are kind of duking it out and you know, every once in a while God gets, you know, gets punched and stuff like that. No, absolutely not. God is in complete control. Don't give Satan more credit. God is seated on his throne. He knows exactly what he's doing. But in his wisdom, he has granted Satan to have a realm that he is able to function in. And that's why he's called the prince of the power Of the air. He is the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. So we're told that by grace, though, even in that context, we have been saved through faith. And although Satan was our realm, we are now made alive and seated with Christ in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Then chapter 6, and you all know this very, very well, chapter 6, and verse. 10 through 20 in particular, we're called to stand against the schemes of the devil. But let's look at verse 12 in particular. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against rulers, against authorities, against cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. So he calls us to take up the armor of God, which would be the unsearchable riches of Christ, which would be the spiritual blessings of the gospel and to stand, and as we stand, we pray and proclaim, um, and, and we proclaim the gospel. Both of those things, praying and proclaim the gospel, are tied together as we stand. So we can summarize the core message of Ephesians by saying this. By grace, God has united the church together, Jews and Gentiles, and seated them in Christ and is making known the wisdom of God through them to rulers and authorities in heavenly places, both heaven and on earth. Now, that's kind of the big picture of, of how you bring all these themes together and kind of see what's going on, right? Now, I, I, I wanted to give those to you so you'd begin to have some threads that you can follow as you begin to study the book of Ephesians. But God is calling us to ultimately recognize our identity in heaven him. And with that, I want us to go back to the first couple of verses, and we're going to walk through, just in the last couple of minutes here, uh, verses 1 and 2 of chapter 1. And there uh, are some profound things that Paul says here as he begins, all right? God wants us to see who we are in Christ and how we came to be in Christ ultimately. So let's read verses 1 and 2. Paul, an apostle of Christ, Jesus by the will of God to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus, grace and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now we could just blow by that and say that's just a basic introduction, but it's far, far more than that. First of all, I want you to notice God's chosen messenger. Chosen messenger is Paul. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, By the will of God. What does an apostle do? The apostle takes the message of God and proclaims it. That is what Paul had been called to. But understand, Paul was called out of persecution. Right? He was a persecutor of the church. But now, having been called out of that persecution, he's called to face opposition with the gospel. He is a messenger of God, proclaiming the word of God. Now, how did that come to be? It came to be by the will of God. God called Paul to be his apostle, to proclaim his word. Paul's identity in Christ would be that he is an apostle, called by the will of God. So his conversion and his appointments had nothing to do with Paul. Paul did say one day, you know, I wonder what I'm going to do with my life. I've been a persecutor. I know, I'll be an apostle. No. there was a divine transaction that took place when he wasn't even looking for it. And God grabbed him shook him, literally knocked him off a horse and called him to serve him as an apostle. Now friends, it's important to recognize that and we don't say, well, God just does that with special people. The calling of God is given specifically to those whom God wills. He willed that Paul would be saved. Let's look at the next expression here. God's chosen people. Notice how they're described. To the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus. Let's break that up. They are saints in Ephesus. This word saint is kind of abused and misused. It's not not a word that describes some kind of a super powerful spiritual Christian, it's a description of every believer. We're all saints. So it's a foreign concept to say a particular person is a saint. There are some religious institutions that use that expression, but that's not how the Word of God uses it here. A saint simply means someone who's set apart, someone who's holy, someone who's sanctified. It means that we have been cleansed from all our guilt through Christ Jesus' sacrifice on the cross, which he did on our behalf. And as a result, hear this, we are separated from this evil world and set apart unto God for his purposes. So we're set apart from the world unto God. That's what a saint is. And secondly, the faithful in Christ Jesus. This is talking about um, the, the fact that they are true believers. They continue to believe. Their, their, their belief is evident here by their practice. Now, the other reality that we have to recognize here there is a physical realm, saints in Ephesus, and there's the spiritual realm, their faithful where? In Christ Jesus. And you might even be able to put in there for yourself here the saints in Castor Valley, the faithful in Christ Jesus. It's a physical reality. God has called you to hear. We had that same theme in Jude, didn't we? God has called you in the midst of ungodliness to minister here. And Paul is doing the same thing. He's reminding the Ephesians here, this is the place that God has called you to be. But your seat is also with Christ in the heavenly places. God's chosen people. And this is God's chosen message. God's chosen message. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So God the Father and Jesus Christ our Lord give us two gifts that that weave a gospel thread through this letter. Let's just think about this. This word grace is used 12 times in the book of Ephesians. By grace we have been saved. Chapter 2, verses 5 and 8. The riches of His grace, 1, seven and 2.7. The gift of grace, and we see that a number of times um, chapter, in chapter 3 and chapter 4. So this idea of grace is, is weaving and is all behind the activities that God is doing in us, to us, and through us. Then there's this gift of peace that we find eight times in the book of Ephesians. Christ is our peace, chapter 2.14 Christ brings peace, chapter 2, verse 15. Christ preached peace, chapter 2, verse 17. And this peace then becomes the fruit of our application of the gospel in our relationships. Our relationships then, when we apply God's truth appropriately, result in what? Peace. So grace and peace are wonderful, incredible, powerful gifts that God has given us so that we can do what he's called us to do. Now at the end of the letter, the order is reversed. Turn to Ephesians chapter 6 and verse 23. Ephesians 6 and verse 23. It says, Peace be to the brothers and love with faith from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace be with you all who love our Lord Jesus Christ who love incorruptible. So grace and peace bookend this wonderful letter. And as this is a simple, simple lesson here, grace will always lead to peace. And secondly, peace will always rest in grace. Now we'll, we'll tease that out as we go through this, this letter. But grace will always lead to peace. And, and just think about this. You will not have peace without grace being applied first. Peace will always rest in grace. The turmoil that you're experiencing, when we fight through that turmoil, we wrestle against the principalities and powers in our mind, in our thinking, in our heart, and we recognize and we remember the gospel, and we remember what God has called us to, and we remember that we are supposed to be here making known the wisdom of God. It brings things into perspective. The grace of God, then, is what we rest in, which then brings peace. So this peace is resting in the grace of God. It's just a wonderful reality. And just beginning to to understand how those work are incredibly powerful. Now, just as we conclude, I want to be very, very simple and to challenge you. But I want to bring together just kind of the focus of what I'm saying this letter is about. Just three words there. They're on the header if you want to look at that, but you can see it here. Number one, what is Ephesians about? It's about your life. This really is about you. Yes, it's about the Ephesian church too. But if we take the timeless truths, the timeless principles, it is about you personally and about us corporately. It's about you as individuals who are married, who have parents, who work jobs, who have relationships, who struggle with all sorts of sinful behavior. Ephesians chapter 4, different struggles that people have. But it's also about the church corporately. It's about your life. Secondly, it's about your life that you're living, how? By grace. And grace is undergirding everything that God is asking you to do. The first three chapters are screaming at us, the grace of God. The grace of God has done all these things. And now you are called to act and behave in a certain way, how? By grace. Okay? So your life by grace in Christ. This is where you're seated. This is your ultimate spiritual position. So Ephesians here is about your life by grace in Christ. And you might even add, for the glory of God. Now friends, there's a lot more that we can talk about. My challenge to you today is to read through the book of Ephesians not just the sections that we're going to study next week, but read through and take some of the the structure that we've looked at here and and look in your Bible and see these themes and and begin to to grasp and absorb what, what Paul is saying to these Ephesian believers and then ultimately so that we can glean direction and guidance for what he wants us to see about ourselves and about Gateway Bible Church. The application is a challenge to you to take this little letter and and, and just breathe it in, meditate on it, study it, consider it. There's some difficult themes in here, and we'll wrestle through them, but the richness that comes as a result of grasping what is there will fuel and counsel and guide your heart so that you can do what God is asking you to do for His glory. And I think all of us in here who name the name of Christ want to live in a way that pleases Him, want to conform ourselves to His purposes and His will. And this book is going to guide us and give us perspective as to how we can do that together. All right? That theme of coming together as one man. And as a church, we come together as one man. And we recognize that we are called to make known the mysteries of and the wisdom of God to those around us. But that means that we need to know those realities too. Lord, help us today. We have labored long and hard here this morning in in much more technical ways than we typically do to to get the the big picture, to get the lay of the land, to get the structure, and to understand, Lord, what's weaving through this this letter and what is on your heart through the pen of Paul. And Lord, you've given us this book so that we can grow, so that we can... um, be, be nurtured, Lord, to, to live our lives in a way that would honor and please you. And, Lord, help us now not just to think of this as, a, as some kind of an academic study or we're just going to go through a book, Lord, but this is, this is the food that you want us to feed on right now. So, Lord, help us to, to love this book. Help us to know it. And, Lord, in knowing the, the book, Lord, may it take us to places where we see Christ afresh, where we see our union with Christ in a, in a new way. Where we see our life with Christ fleshed out practically in our marriages, in our, in our families, in our relationships, in the office, and, and at other places, Lord. Would you allow all that we are doing and, and how we are living, Lord, to, to be understood, Lord, through all that you reveal through this book. And Lord, ultimately, we want to be your servants faithful to what you've called us to lord so give us strength to do that today and lord even now as we pause together and we remember what you have done on the cross for us lord would you would you help us to see that your cross was that that place of transaction that through your death you ascended into heaven to sit at the right hand of the father and lord that was That was only because of your love. It was only because of your heart's desire to bring reconciliation, and Lord, we praise you for that. So Lord, now may we celebrate together. May we sing, may we take the elements, and may we glorify you and remember this wonderful, beautiful gospel that we have in you. In your precious holy name, amen.